This episode is with Bernardo Castro. Bernardo is an author, philosopher, and director of the Essentia Foundation. He has a PhD in philosophy and another PhD in computer engineering, specializing in artificial intelligence. As a scientist, Bernardo has worked for the European Organization for Nuclear Research, CERN, and the Philips Research Laboratories. In this conversation, we talk about drawbacks of materialism, what is consciousness, nature of reality, panpsychism, analytical idealism, free will, what is time, meaning of life and death. Enjoy the conversation, share and subscribe to support the podcast. Thank you for listening. Hi, Bernardo. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Jitendra. So I wanted to start with what are the most most difficult questions you consider about cosmos? What, what are your like top numbers in the list? Wow, there are there are so many. We have barely scratched the surface of the mystery. We know how to model nature's surface behavior, but that doesn't tell us very much about what nature is, what what's going on. I think that the exact nature of matter is, is a big open question and no physicist will be able to tell you exactly what it is with confidence. Uh, the role of mentation, consciousness uh, uh, in nature, I think it is a fundamental role. I think uh, uh, mind or consciousness underlies uh, all nature, but it's also a polemical view to have today, although it used to be obvious a couple of thousand years ago. Um, in many others, uh, some of some of the mysteries affect us directly. Like, you know, what exactly is cancer? Is it one thing? Is it a whole lot of different things? What is it that actually triggers it? What's the interplay between the physiology of cancer and and our minds, our consciousness? You know, uh, what's going on deep within our minds? Um, the UAP phenomenon is a big one. The unidentified aerial uh, object, or no? I forgot what the UAP now stands for, UFOs. Uh, the yeah, UFO yeah. phenomenon uh, is, is a very big mystery because here we have something that has been recorded multiple times and it seems to violate physics. So uh, how, is, how is it happening exactly? How is that possible? What is it that we don't know about nature that something else seems to know? So there are countless mysteries. Wow. So still your list is there, which is, I mean, probably for next thousands of years, uh, it will keep humanity busy uh, in addressing those questions. Um, so let's start with the, uh, the the other or the major problem that you work on. Um, you, as you already men mentioned about mentation, uh, hard problem of consciousness. Um, but in your work, basically you... Uh, target materialism because that's the that's where at least what you mentioned is that that's where modern science is focusing right but but that doesn't mean science and materialism has to be uh, uh coherent or like has to go together right correct materialism is not science materialism is a metaphysics it's a statement about what lies behind physics metaphysics in other words, it's a statement about what nature is, uh, while science studies what uh, uh, science studies how nature behaves, what nature does. Um, the scientific method, um, which happens, what well, takes place through experimentation, 
what it does is we pose a question to nature in the form of an experiment, and nature replies in the form of a doing, of a behavior. Nature does something in reply to experimental conditions. So the scientific method is powerful, but also limited for our discerning how nature behaves. It, it uh, only tells us something about what nature is indirectly. Um, and what nature is, is, a, is the business of metaphysics. It's just the, the problem we have in the West and now worldwide, because the West has contaminated uh, all cultures with, with its way of thinking, is that um, people conflate this, particularly certain self-appointed spokespeople of science, uh, they, they don't know what the difference is. Uh, they think the scientific method can answer any question. And, and that's a dangerous uh, attitude to have for science because it shoots, it shoots science uh, on the foot. Um, so yeah, that's where we are today. We think that uh, science is materialist, but no, science is agnostic of metaphysics. Science tell, uh, tells us or predicts how nature behaves. It doesn't say anything directly about what nature is. But again, then we can go into detail and kind of think of science, which again is the product of mentation of consciousness. And uh, when we start thinking about this sort of tool, and we, when we say the limitations are there uh, of the method itself means, is it the limitation of the mentation part or um, well, mentation has its limitations. It would be preposterous for us to think that we monkeys that have been walking this planet for about 200,000 years have already developed a cognitive system advanced enough to capture everything that is salient about nature. I mean, this, this is preposterous. It's like an ant telling you, I'm going to win the next Nobel Prize in physics. Uh, so there's ob there are obvious limitations. We don't know what we don't know, so to say. Um, but science as a method has limitations. Now, these limitations are precisely the power of science. It's what allows science to focus like a laser on the answers that it can, on the questions that it can produce an answer for, and to develop a method that's targeted at that and very powerful at that. So the other side of the coin of the power of science are the limitations of science. There are two sides of the same coin. Science will not answer questions of being. It cannot. Science will not answer questions of meaning. It cannot because it doesn't deal um, in, in, in value judgments, in subjective value judgments. It deals in measurements, which are descriptions. Um, but precisely because of that, because science deals in descriptions, it cannot really tell you with, with certainty anything about the nature of the thing described. It can only describe its behavior through quantities. Um, so yeah, the, the limitations of science, are, it, it, this is not bad news. It's the other side of the coin of science's power. Yeah, this is interesting. I mean, of course, we'll come back to this point later as well. Um, let's talk about uh, how well does science uh, defines or explains reality? at least the modern science. Well, it, uh, it, it describes the behavior of nature, the, the behavior of, of reality uh, exquisitely well. I mean, uh, the degree of precision, not only accuracy, but the, the degree of precision 
of field, uh, quantum field theory is just astonishing. It's astonishing the precision with which we can predict the values of certain constants or the values of certain measurements is just astonishing. Um, we shouldn't put that down. It's not like you know science is the enemy here. Absolutely not. I mean, I, I grew up within a scientific context. I landed at university at 17. Science has been the air I breathed, the water I've drunk, the milk I've drunk <laughs> has been scientific milk. My first job was at CERN, uh, the, the home of the particle accelerator on the border between Switzerland and France. That was my first job. I landed there at 22 to help develop the, the data acquisition system of the Atlas detector, one of the two large experiments of the LHC. Um, so I, I, I am... I'm very thankful that we have science. I think it has improved and extended human life to amazing degrees. Um, but we do a disservice to science when we think science can answer every question. No, it can't. It shouldn't. Why would it? No, its power resides precisely in what it can do well. So not, not, not let, let's not try to use it as a tool for the wrong problem. You know, my hammer is very useful, but it doesn't tighten a screw. Uh, and science is one is one tool. There are other tools um, or other avenues to acquire knowledge. The, the, the avenue science um, is based on is uh, empirical observation. Um, experimentation is a form of uh, you know controlled empirical observation. Uh, but you also have introspection, which is instead of observing the world outside, you observe the mind within. That's an avenue to knowledge as well because you cannot abstract you from the process of your knowing something. Uh, knowing something is an interaction between two things, the thing known and the knower. So if you can introspect into the knower, you can get tremendous insight into the validity or the extent or even the qualities of knowledge. And there is yet another one, another method, which is philosophy which is uh, you, you let yourself be guided through empirical observation, but your method has to do with clear, explicit conceptual thinking or reasoning or logical thinking. Uh, you use logic uh, to, to uncover uh, hidden, invalid assumptions in your thinking. You try to scrutinize your lines of reasoning to, to see whether they, they actually stand up to reason, so to say. It's very difficult to think clearly and accurately. Um, scientists who think that, uh, well, we can take it for granted that we all think clearly, they, they haven't confronted this problem yet. Philosophers are very keenly aware of how wrong seemingly logical thinking can go, how illogical it can be. So we need the tools of philosophy as well. So there you go, there, there are already three avenues to knowledge, you know, empirical observation, introspection, and logical reasoning. There are more. You could you could argue that um, relating to other human beings is a deep avenue to knowledge, because knowing another means means knowing something about yourself. Relating to another is relating to yourself through proxy. Um, so yeah, yeah, there are there are many avenues. Yeah, I mean, till the time we have tools like science and philosophy, of course, I think this is already a win-win situation for uh, 21st century humanity. Um, and But when, when you uh, talk about the clarity of the thinking of the thinkers itself, you know, uh, we can 
probably talk about uh, consciousness is an illusion because i think that's <laughs> that's probably already uh, makes the point that how um, misleading it can be or oh, let's let's st- start with your uh, <laughs> thinking thoughts on it it's the stupidest thought ever devised by the human mind not only in philosophy but all categories of thinking uh, it is the stupidest thing that has ever been proposed with or without a straight face uh, there is nothing that can be more stupid insane deranged uh, than this um, and this is a statement that otherwise intelligent reasonable people make so how can that be these people are not crazy they they don't have iqs of 75 uh, um, so what's going on the problem is a problem of belief uh, that that sort of pervades your reasoning and makes you stupid. And the belief is materialism as a metaphysics, in other words, the statement that the only thing that really exists are material entities, and material entities are of another kind than consciousness. They are not conscious and they are not in consciousness. They have standalone existence outside mind. And mind is produced by certain arrangements of this material stuff out there. That's materialism. If you believe this as something that is certain, um, then when you face the internal contradictions of materialism, like defining matter as something that has nothing to do with mind, and then trying to explain mind in terms of matter, it's like, oh, come again, you're chasing your own tail, or describing the felt, perceived world of qualities around us with numbers, with quantities, and then forgetting that those numbers are descriptions and saying that those numbers, the description, precede the thing described. That's, that's another inner contradiction. You, know, you, you, you took a wrong path of reasoning here. But when you believe materialism to be a fact, um, confronting those contradictions forces you to entertain nonsense in order to safeguard materialism. It's a question of belief. If you're sure materialism is true, then there is a sense in which consciousness cannot exist because we define matter in such a way that it has nothing to do with consciousness. Now we are trying to explain consciousness in terms of that thing that has nothing to do with it, matter, and then we, of course, fail. And then instead of thinking, well, materialism is wrong, no, there is no consciousness. <laughs> you see, it's, it's a question of faith, not, not faith, belief belief this is what strong belief does to otherwise intelligent reasonable people it turns them into idiots lunatics and they come up with incredibly convoluted conceptual games to try to justify the lunacy um, and what you see if you look from the outside and you really try to follow them instead of dismissing them you really try to follow and try to understand what's going on inside their mind what you see is that they are creating so many conceptual layers of abstraction that um, all of those abstractions hide the problem from them. And then they wave their hands and say, oh, somewhere, somewhere there, there is an answer to it. And they think that there is really an answer. So they create this mist, this obfuscation, this obscurantism of you know, conceptual layers of abstraction connected to one another in 
absolutely intricate and unnecessary and unclear ways. And then they say, oh, yeah, somehow behind all that cloud of that mist, there is the answer. I'm trying to point at it. And you, Bernardo, you don't have goodwill. You're not trying to understand me. No, no, I, I'm, I do try to understand the madness. It uh, doesn't mean that you agree with it. But I do try to understand. I think it's a very interesting problem how an otherwise intelligent person can turn into a lunatic because of belief. Yeah, and probably then we'll have to go and discuss uh, a lot of psychology as well to understand why this may happen. Um, but so, so the key issue is um, that the fact that scientists ended up uh, defining matter you know, and and thinking that matter is the how to say the core essence or the the starting point of uh, everything and ev everything by uh, we mean in general uh, abiotic and biotic um, or inanimate or animate matter in in general, right? So in I mean there there are books which are textbooks even which are full of all this information where. Or in general, when I talk to other scientists who are working on uh, issues like origins of life or um, evolution, etc., there is there is also this kind of you know process which has uh, been laid in front of people and also the the, the other scientists that the that the, there is matter and something happens that matter basically forms um, replicators, some sort of replicator. So. This is a kind of famous also explanation in Richard Dawkins's book, Selfish Dream, where he starts with matter, that something happens, it, the, the, there, are there were replicators at some point, and these replicators, which get encapsulated in, in, a, in a membrane, forms this primitive cell. And these primitive cells, then they evolve and form different or give uh, rise to different life forms on the, on the planet. And at some point we hit by another wave uh, and then we get these kind of neurons and neuron-based uh, processes. So in, in a nutshell, this is a kind of uh, process which has been explained from the materialistic point of view, right? So what do you think, where is the problem? The problem is the process itself or it is the, the properties of the matters which are defined in certain way? Well, uh, let's begin by acknowledging that what we colloquially call matter obviously exists. I can take my metal bottle here. This thing that I colloquially call a metal bottle, this material thing obviously exists. So to deny what we colloquially call matter is just, is, is just senseless. There is this so-called material world around us. What can be denied is how materialism as a metaphysics defines what matter is. Materialism defines matter as something that has standalone existence, that does not depend on minds to exist, and which in turn arranges itself in certain ways to generate mind as an epiphenomenon. So this is what I deny. I deny that the colloquially material world around us has standalone standalone existence, uh, or that it creates my mind. Um, and th there is a lot of empirical substanti substantiation for this as well. Now, even after you do not deny colloquial matter, we are still left with two separate problems. They are related, but they are different problems. 
One is abiogenesis, the origin of life from non-life. And the other one is mentation. Uh, is mentation fundamental or not? If it's not, then how does it come to be? What is it about uh, an organism that gives rise to this incredible stuff that we call consciousness, which seems to be useless because all uh, structure and function uh, can unfold without it being accompanied by experience. So uh, under materialism, there's no need for consciousness. There's no need for this witness of material processes that are autonomous and would do whatever they needed to do, whether we experienced them or not. Um, the problem of abiogenesis is a legitimate one. Um, we are surrounded by life forms and we have never managed to create a life form from, from scratch, from non-living minerals in a laboratory. We have been, able to, have been able to replace the DNA of a cell with a synthesized DNA, uh, but the cell was produced by nature. It was alive before we took it into the lab and replaced its DNA. We have not managed to create life from non-life. Why? I don't know, but it's a legitimate problem. I think eventually we will crack it. I think eventually we will manage to artificially induce um, life from non-living elements. Now, another problem altogether is mentation. Um, because when we start trying to figure out how the organism creates mentation, gives rise to consciousness, we are already making an implicit assumption and an examined metaphysical assumption, which is that consciousness is something that is created in the first place. Because from a very strict empirical perspective, everything we have ever known or will know happens within consciousness. Consciousness is the carrier of reality, the only carrier of reality we have. Everything else is abstraction. And it can be correct theoretical abstraction, but it is still abstraction. We are cooped up inside consciousness. The world we see around us is in our consciousness insofar as we know it. Now, of course, there is something outside our individual minds. If you were sitting next to me, you would describe my study in a way consistent with my own description. So clearly there is a world we both inhabit, a world our individual minds inhabit, but that doesn't mean that this world is non-mental. It can be also mental, not my mind, not your mind, mind out there, mind at large, but still mental, just in the same way that from your perspective, my thoughts exist, but you, it's not, they are not your mentation, they are mine. From your perspective, my thoughts are objective, but from their own perspective, my thoughts are subjective. So it's the same thing. And that the, a possibility is that nature from its own perspective is subjective, but it's not my or your subjectivity. From our perspective, nature is objective, even, even though it can still be mental. So when we try to answer the question, how is mind created in the same way that we ask, how is life created? we are already making a, a unexamined metaphysical presupposition, which is that mind is created in the first place. Maybe the, the body is not the creator of mind. Maybe the brain and the patterns of brain activity that we do know correlate with consciousness. Maybe they are what certain conscious processes look like from the outside. Maybe the body is an image of mental processes. It's what mental processes look like, how they present themselves to external observation as opposed to being the source or the origin or the generator of mental processes. This would still be completely 
in accord with the neuroscientific empirical evidence and even anecdotal evidence. Like if you drink alcohol, something changes in your consciousness. If I prick your arm with a needle, you feel the pain. How can that be? Well, the needle under an idealist perspective is what a mental process out there in nature looks like. When you prick your arm with a needle, there is a process, a mental process in nature that interferes with the mental process in your mind. And the result of that interference is pain. Uh, the same for a glass of alcohol. The glass of alcohol is what a mental process in mind at large looks like. When you ingest it, you're bringing that mental process into your own mind and it has a causal effect in your mentation. Just like thoughts change your emotions or your emotions change your thoughts. Uh, mental processes of different kinds have causal effects on one another. So I think the problem of mind is unfortunately one that is much more prone to metaphysical, uh, hidden metaphysical assumptions that eventually lead to nonsense and to a lot of money wasted in research because we make assumptions without even knowing that we are making them. The problem of life, I think, is a different one. There are living creatures out there. Why the hell is it that we can create one artificially? Those living creatures are made of the same atoms and force fields that, that are present in the soil. So why? Why? I mean, that's, that's an interesting question. Yeah, I just wanted to leave it out there because uh, once we start drawing parallels um, and especially if we, or once we start talking about conscious consciousness being fundamental or emergent phenomena, uh, similar kind of uh, arguments can also be asked for uh, life as well. The weather, I mean, of course, this is how we try to define or we try to define life in a certain way. But in future, if we also kind of start thinking that uh, this question is also not, not that important about what is life, it's simply the change of matter in a certain way. And uh, well, if consciousness is fundamental, if all of nature um, is what mental processes um, in the mind of the universe, so to say, uh, look like uh, when we are observing them from the outside, then life too is the appearance of a mental process in universal consciousness, if you want to call it that way, mind at large, whatever you want to call it. Um, and then you might ask the question, how is it induced? Because if everything is mental, we can ask the question, why? Um, if everything is material, there is no why. It's a mechanism. It, it, it happens because it can happen, and given enough time, it will happen. That's, how, that's why volcanoes erupt. There isn't a materialist why. What's the reason for the volcano to erupt? No, it erupts because eruptions can happen in nature, and given enough time, it's going to happen. There is no why. But if nature is mental, then the why question is a valid question again. And you may legitimately ask, why life? Why is the mind of nature giving rise to this peculiar state of consciousness that we call being alive? You know, a state of consciousness that require you to maintain yourself basically outside of thermodynamic equilibrium, fighting entropy all the way. It's unnatural. So why is nature doing something seemingly or superficially unnatural? Um, that's a valid question. I, I, I don't have the answer for that. Um, in my cynical mood, I would say, well, life too is something that can happen. And so it was bound to happen. And it did happen. That's all there is to it. 
that could be a valid question, um, but it's equally valid to ask why, and I don't have a clear answer. Well, I mean, it's um, it's not related to our discussion, but anyways, the like Sean Carroll's book, The Big Picture, he talks about uh, this issue a little bit, and he kind of start talking about complexity in a way that how complexity um, arises in the in the cos cosmos in general, because and life we can think of it as a, as this complex phenomena which happens. So then they now they are uh, looking into it that. Um, how this kind of complexity, uh, which is again, you know, change in entropy it, it itself, will give rise to uh, some sort of explan explanation about life. Um, well, the complexity science is is extremely uh, insightful and and useful these days. Um, the problem of complexity is a problem we have regardless of metaphysics, uh, whether you're a materialist or an idealist or a dualist, whatever you are. We have to deal with the fact that we have every reason to believe that the universe at its core level is simple. It follows only a handful of very simple rules. We call them the basic laws of physics. We have every reason to believe it began in a very simple state immediately after the singularity we call the Big Bang. So how come all this complexity? Where does that come from? Because everything was sort of uniform in the beginning, um, and, and obeying very simple rules. And now with complexity science, we know that immense complexity can arise from very simple rules. Just run a cellular automata like the game of life, automaton like the game of life, and you will see incredible patterns, very complex, sustained patterns emerging out of a very simple rule. If two or three of your neighbors are alive, you're still alive, otherwise you're dead. That's it. And you apply that recursively to every cell in a cellular automata, and you get creatures emerging. You get fights for resources and cannons and cannons and you know creatures shooting each other. I mean, it, it's amazing. So I think complexity science can give us um, a lot of answers there, but not all answers. And I'll tell you why. Um, in the first moments of the universe, the distribution of mass in, uh, in the universe, the very, very, very early universe, was completely uniform. Meaning that uh, even with gravity in the picture, uh, there was no place in that uniform distribution of mass that had a little bit more mass, so gravity could clump things around that extra mass. If everything was uniform, gravity maintains it uniform. The distribution of you know, the effects of gravity would be equally un uniform. And the universe would basically be nothing. It would be a flat, uniform nothing. Now, why did that not happen? Well, because of what we model in theory today as quantum fluctuations. Uh, in, in quantum field theory, um, particles aren't marbles. They aren't actually particles. They are just ripples on quantum fields that span the entire universe. And um, a quantum field has this name because its excitations are quantized. Unlike a ripple that can have any height, a quantum field can only have certain heights. Um, and lo and behold, we know experimentally in the concept that we now call virtual particles, that even when nothing happens in a vacuum, 
when you're not interfering with that vacuum in any way, there are only the quantum fields there inside that vacuum, um, they still get spontaneously excited. Virtual particles are produced in a perfect vacuum that is not interfered with. Um, you could say that particles pop into existence out of nothing and vanish back into nothing, uh, which sounds like magic, but it's not because there is no particle. Uh, there are only ripples uh, on the quantum fields and ripples can form and go flat again. It's not magic. Quantum field theory is precisely a way to make sense of what seems to be magic if you look at particles as little marbles. Um, and in the early universe, there were quantum fluctuations in the original quantum fields, which created uh, slightly ununiform distributions of mass. And those ununiformities were then amplified by gravity, leading to the formation of nebulae and stars and galaxies and, and, and black holes and the whole shebang. Why and how do quantum fluctuations happen? Because even with complexity science allowing us to connect the dots from the moment of the quantum fluctuations until everything we have now, we still don't have a satisfying account for how or why the quantum fluctuations happened early on. Because if there weren't these strange things of the universe self-exciting spontaneously to form you know, ununiformities in the distribution of energy, there would be nothing. And yet here we are. You know, and, and not to mention all the fine tuning of the universal constants without which even quantum, quantum fluctuations wouldn't have been enough to create any complexity, any structure in the universe. So we have explanations that go back to 10 to the power of minus 30 something seconds after the Big Bang, um, but we don't have the final explanation. And it so happens that the, the final questions are the most important ones and we don't have answers for them. Yeah, but how exciting this stuff is that at least we are going there. I mean, uh, how far are we? This will, uh, I think this time will tell, but um, at least we are discovering about uh, the nature to that extent. That's that's really exciting. Um, so, so about the consciousness, back to consciousness. So your argument is that it is fundamental. And a materialist argument is that it emerges uh, later on, especially uh, during the course of evolution. Um, so what do you think then the, uh, how, I mean, of course, with, with your explanation, we can already refute the, the point, but um, how well we can argue against the emergent part? Oh, I can speak for hours on this. The first thing to keep in mind is that an appeal to strong emergency is an appeal to magic. It's an appeal to an unknown. We have no idea how it can happen. So we gave it a name and now we feel all warm and fuzzy that we know something. Consciousness is emergent. No, you know nothing. You made exactly zero progress because strong emergency is, in, is an incoherent concept. It's an appeal to magic. Um, there are many reasons why materialism is nonsense. Um, materialism is equivalent to the following. Trying to explain how matter generates consciousness is akin to trying to explain how the number five got married. You see what I mean? It, it's a category error. 
uh, it's not the question to ask. It makes no sense. Um, but because we can't figure out how the number five got married, we call it a problem. We call it the hard problem of consciousness. And we promise ourselves that we will solve it one day. Um, now, why is it a category error? I suggested it before. Um, the quantities in terms of which we define matter, quantities like how many kilograms, how many kilometers, how many hertz, how many coulombs, um, these quantities describe a world of qualities around us. We see things, we touch things, there is concreteness, we feel. Um, and the numbers are abstract descriptions of the world around us. Even if we are using a microscope or a telescope or an oscilloscope, you are still perceiving a world around you. And you describe the output of those instruments through numbers. Numbers are descriptions. But materialism then says, no, the numbers uh, tell us everything there is to say about matter. They, they exhaustively define matter. And matter precedes the world of qualities we see around us. In other words, we are trying to explain the thing described, the origin of the thing described in terms of, a, of its description. It's like trying to pull the territory out of the map. Uh, and it's a strange inversion of the epistemic order of reasoning here. We describe a world and then we say, no, 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 the description precedes the world. And then it doesn't work and we say, well, it's a problem. We will solve it one day. We, one day we will create map version 2.0 and then we will be able to reach into the map and pull uh, the territory from out of the map. Well, good luck with that. Um, there are other problems uh, with materialism uh, of an empirical nature. Materialism presupposes that matter has standalone existence. In other words, that it's independent of measurement, independent of anything non-material independent of any process. Matter is just out there, is what exists, um, regardless of whether we are here to measure it or not. Uh, it turns out that in foundations of physics, there is a series of experiments done with entangled particles now, begun in the late 70s. You could say it culminated in 2015 or in 2018, depending on which camp you're cheering for, but it has now culminated to a point that there are no loopholes left. And short of theoretical fantasies that I would describe in a moment, short of those uh, woo-woo theoretical fantasies, what the experiments tell us is the following. Matter is a result of measurement. If you produce two entangled particles, say photons, and you shoot one in one direction and you shoot the other in the other direction, and you call them photons A and B, and let's say Alice, one scientist, will make a measurement of photon A, and Bob, another scientist, makes a measurement, measurement of photon B, and Alice and Bob are far away, but they make their measurements at the same time. What Alice chooses to measure about photon A determines what Bob will see when he measures photon B. In other words, what photon B is depends on what Alice chooses to measure about photon A, another photon on the other side of the universe. Um, technically, what's measured popularly is uh, angular momentum, the, the, the axis of angular momentum, the direction of angular momentum. Um, so what that tells us is that uh, the angular momentum of a photon does not exist until you measure it, because what it is depends on what you choose to measure. And the same thing applies to any other physical uh, property, mass, momentum, whatever you want to measure, 
the result of that measurement is a function of what you choose to measure, how you configure the measurement equipment. And that tells us that everything in terms of which we define materiality is not there prior to an observation, prior to a measurement. In other words, physical entities, material entities do not have standalone existence. Physicality is epiphenomenal. The thing measured is not physical. Physicality is what emerges from the process of measuring that thing, that lower level of nature, that more fundamental level, whatever it is. And if that is so, then materialism cannot be true. Um, in neuroscience of consciousness, we now have 10 years of repeated observations that uh, many things that impair brain activity, like psychedelics. Psychedelics only reduce brain activity. They don't light up your brain like a Christmas tree at all. They only reduce brain activity. Yet you're having the richest, most intense experience of your life during a psychedelic trance. And it's not only psychedelics, many other things, even lack of oxygen in the brain, like in the choking game or through a G-force induced uh, loss of consciousness um, or certain other uh, self-induced trances. Um, all of these things lead to incredibly rich, intense experience while only reducing or impairing your brain activity. Even bullet wounds to the, to the head are known to have, in fact, enriched your cognitive inner life. Not every bullet wound to the, to the head, uh, but there are cases of uh, so-called acquired savant, savant uh, syndrome in which people suddenly have a much richer inner life because of a bullet wound to the head. Um, and these things are the black swans. Now, most of the swans are white. Most brain activity correlates with the intensity of experience. More experience, more brain activity. But it's not only white swans in the lake. There, there are several black swans. And one is enough to tell you that, well, if in some cases a lot less brain activity correlates with mind-bogglingly more experience, then brain activity cannot generate experience. It's an information, information theoretical argument. You just do not have the su sufficient variety of states in the brain after reduction of brain activity compared to the baseline placebo uh, to justify the experience of trance under a materialist terms. I, I could go on. I could speak all afternoon about this. <laughs> but these examples were very uh, interesting. The, the fact that psychedelic experiences, they reduce the brain activity and um, still people are having these kind of rich experiences. This is uh, yeah, really... the media. The media has misreported this um, because when, when people find that brain activity is only reducing under psychedelics, they start looking for something that increases. Um, so they looked at, uh, for instance, um, uh, functional connectivity between different areas of the brain. So the brain has, is much less active, but whatever activity remains tends to be more correlated across different parts of the brain. And then they put a picture online showing red for higher connectivity and the media picks it up and, and, and thinks, well, it's more activity. No, 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 activity is much less. That's only increased connectivity of the residual activity. The media misreports this. Some of the researchers themselves misreport this. I have confronted one a few years ago um, uh, with this, he never corrected himself, although the proof is on the papers, on the publications. Um, and, and, and even new research, um, they found out that in certain bands of the frequency spectrum, because you can measure the frequency of uh, our brain activity, 
And that frequency has several bands. You know, you have low frequency band, intermediate frequency, frequency band, high frequency band, you call them alpha, beta, uh, theta, and, and so on and so forth. And then people find out that although your overall brain activity diminishes, the proportion of the residual brain activity in a certain frequency band, say theta, uh, is higher. And then they report, well, higher brain activity for that frequency band. No, 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 brain activity is lower. But of the residual brain activity in, the, in that particular band, that particularly ra particular range of frequencies, there is more activity than before. And you see, and then people think, oh, psychedelics increase brain activity. No, no, they don't. You see, it's amazing what the media does. Uh, the media thinks that uh, unless they spin it in materialist language in a way that's consistent with materialism, then they are getting something wrong. And that's precisely the reason they get it wrong. But then how do we uh, here interlink this quality or the quality of the experience with the quantity itself, like with the intensity, if it is related to quality, or we are just, again, talking in well, materialistic terms now? If, if we, under materialism, assume that the body is what generates experience, uh, then there can be nothing to experience but what you can trace back to the body, right? Otherwise, you have disembodied experience, <laughs> ghostly experience, <laughs> uh, which is, uh, defeats uh, materialism. So under materialism, if the brain, the central nervous system, is what creates, generates, or gives rise to experience, um, then whatever information amount there is in the experience, you have to be able to trace it back to the information available in the central nervous system's metabolism. There has to be enough state changes in metabolism to ground state changes in consciousness. Um, and if you can't do that, then you have a problem. And guess what? With psychedelics, you have a problem. With certain trance states, you have a problem. With acquired savant syndrome, you have a problem. With uh, anoxia, you have a problem. Strangulation or other things that reduce blood flow to the head, which gives you a high uh, psychedelic-like experience without drugs, you have a problem. Uh, with those certain meditative states, you have a problem with those. Now, under idealism, the notion that all reality is in consciousness, so the alternative to materialism, the body is what a certain state of consciousness looks like. It's how certain mental processes present themselves to observation. The body is the image of your conscious inner life, not the cause of it. And now it's a different game because images don't need to be complete. I don't need to trace everything that is true about you back to the image I'm seeing on my screen right now. For starters, I don't see the back of your head. I don't see behind your skin. I don't see all the details of, of, of your metabolism. Images are not necessarily complete and are almost invariably incomplete. No image captures everything about the phenomenon it is an image of. Images are invariably incomplete. So the fact that you cannot trace back to the nervous system, back to brain metabolism, um, the mind-boggling experience of a, of a deep psychedelic trance, for the idealist, it's not a problem. The body is not a complete image of the mind, particular, par particularly when the mind is undergoing certain states of consciousness. 
you, you do not need to find everything about that experience back somewhere in the body. You don't need to have this, this one-to-one, you know, uh, uh, by, by junctive correlation of the information content of the two because images are incomplete and it's okay that they are incomplete. They are always incomplete. Now, seeing lightning doesn't tell you every detail about the ions moving in the atmosphere or the electric charges uh, in the atmosphere. Seeing a person doesn't tell you everything about that person. So seeing a brain doesn't tell you everything about the person's mental activity. That's okay under idealism. So incomplete images are uh, the mentation under materialism and which somehow we can, or not somehow, we, we can actually complete with these images in, under idealism when we start thinking of uh, something like universal consciousness, right? Well, under idealism, well, at least under analytic idealism, um, what life is, is the image of a dissociative process in the broader mind of nature, in the broader fields of subjectivity that underlies all nature. Uh, and that's why I can't read your thoughts and you can't read mine. We are dissociative processes. We are dissociated uh, from the rest of the mind of nature and from each other's <laughs> dissociated minds. Um, so some patterns of brain activity must be what the dissociative process itself looks like, as opposed to the contents of the dissociation, the particular thoughts and feelings within the dissociative boundary. Most of our brain activity correlates with the contents of, of our minds. In other words, the contents within the dissociative boundary that we are. Um, but the dissociative process itself must also look like something. Some forms of brain activity must look like the dissociative process. And my hypothesis is when psychedelics reduce brain activity, what they are doing is they are impairing the dissociative processes themselves. And that's why there is less brain activity, because there is less dissociation. That means the dissociative boundary is more porous, more permeable. And we experience things that are in our, in our cognitive neighborhood, but which are not part of our minds. And therefore, they are very strange, and they feel very disconcerting. Uh, um, and that's why we have these mind-boggling experiences under psychedelics. We sort of probe beyond the boundaries of the dissociative process we call life. And we experience things that we otherwise would never experience because we are dissociative processes. Mm -hmm. Psychedelics are impairing dissociation. Um, and that's why they have the effect they have. So the idealism uh, basically deals with the this kind of transpersonal experiences or it includes transpersonal experiences. It this makes room for the possibility that there are transpersonal experiences that you cannot trace back to particular patterns of brain activity. Interesting. And this, um, again, uh, observation or reasoning, it comes or it, it can be verified by quantum entanglement. That, that, that's why... Um... Well, I, I think quantum entanglement, what it refutes um, is the notion that matter has standalone existence, that material entities with their material properties like you know, uh, mass, charge, momentum, uh, whatever, um, that they exist prior to observation. Uh, that's what experiments with quantum entanglement, exploring the so-called Bell inequalities and more recently uh, uh, Leggett's uh, inequalities 
that's what these experiments say. The material world isn't there prior to a measurement or to an, an observation. The there is a world out there beyond our individual minds. That's for sure. I think everybody can agree with this. It's not polemical. There is an, a world that we all inhabit and which is outside our individual minds. Uh, and, and that world is what's measured. When we make a measurement, we are measuring that world. But what the, the science is telling us is that short of certain fantasies, that world is not itself physical. It is something else. Physicality is what arises from the measurement, from, if you will, an interference pattern between the measurer and the thing measured. The resulting interference pattern is what we call the physical world. Look, this is not difficult to understand their object. And the, and the reason is, the reason we miss this obvious explanation is that we think the world out there is what appears on the screen of perception, that it's made of objects like this metal bottle that I have in my hands. Um, and that's incredibly naive because it presupposes that perception is a transparent window into the world, that what we perceive is the world as it is in itself. That's absolutely nonsensical and demonstrably false by several lines of argument. One of them is the following. If the world were in itself exactly as we perceive it, in other words, if perception were a transparent window into the world, that would mean that our inner cognitive states would mirror the states of the world out there, right? That's, to see the world as it actually is means that our inner cognitive states are mirroring the states of the world out there. That's, that's what this transparency means. Now, that's impossible. That's not compatible with life. And the reason is an, uh, based on the second law of thermodynamics. There is no upper limit to the dispersion of the states of the world out there. Whatever the world is, we cannot decree that there is an upper limit to the dispersion of its states, to the variety, richness of its states. If perception would mirror inside us the states of the world as it is, there would be no upper bounds to the dispersion of our inner state and therefore no upper bounds to our internal entropy. That means that just by looking at the world, you, you would melt into hot soup. You would not be able to maintain your structure and dynamical integrity uh, because there would be no upper, no upper bounds to your internal entropy. In mythology, that would be like looking at the Gorgon. You die just by looking at something. So no, we don't mirror the states of the world. We encode in our cognitive states useful information about the world. In other words, Perception is not a transparent window into the world. Perception is a dashboard of dials, like in an airplane. You know, airplane pilots can fly by instruments. They don't need the windshield. They don't need that transparent window to see the storm outside as it is. They can fly safely and arrive home safely just by looking at the dials on the dashboard. This is what perception is. We have sensors, like the airplane, we have sensors, our retinas, our eardrums, the surface of the skin, the inner lining of the nose, and the surface of the tongue. These are our airplane sensors. They are measuring the world as the world actually is. The result of those measurements, like in the airplane, is presented to us on a dashboard of dials. That dashboard of dials we call the stuff we see, the stuff we smell, the stuff we hear. But the dashboard isn't the world. 
look, the dashboard of the airplane doesn't look like this storm outside, does it? And it's not this storm outside, but it conveys accurate information about the storm. So much so that based on the dashboard alone, you can fly the plane safely. So we should take perception seriously. We need it to fly our airplanes safely. That's what nature imbued us with, with this dashboard to present the results of our measurements of the world. But the world is not the dashboard. And the dashboard is what we call the physical world. This metal bottle that I'm holding is part of the physical world, but actually it's something be being displayed in my dashboard. The physical world is the result of measurements as displayed on the dashboard. If you don't measure, of course there is no physical world. If the airplane sensors don't make a measurement, the, the dashboard shows nothing. There's nothing on the dials of the dashboard. Is this confounding in any way? Of course not, it's not confounding. It's only confounding if you think that the world is the dashboard, then it becomes confounding. How can the dashboard show nothing unless you, I measure? What is it that I'm measuring? Well, what you're measuring is not dashboard stuff. It's something else. What we measure is non-physical and therefore the physical world only appear after measurement because the physical world is the result of a measurement being displayed on the dashboard that we call perception. There is nothing complicated about it. But because we think the world is the dashboard, we throw our arms up and we think quantum mechanics is counterintuitive. Yeah, okay. That's our sad state today. Yeah, so, so then uh, if we consider consciousness as fundamental under idealism, um, and so was there uh, origin of dashboard at some point or... Uh, something beyond dashboard as well? Well, under idealism, the world outside as it is in itself prior to measurement are mental processes, transpersonal mental processes, not my thoughts or your thoughts, no. Stuff that we can't even conceive of, but mental stuff. Goodness knows what's happening in the mind of nature, what it feels like to be the mind of nature. We are dissociated from it for as long as we are alive. And that literally means that we can't access it. There is no associative path for us to experience what's happening in the mind of nature from a first-person perspective. All we have is the dashboard. Now, the dashboard is a product of life. When the first dissociative process emerged in the mind of nature, um, probably it happened several times, but only the dissociative process that could maintain the dissociation stuck around. The other ones just disappeared. Now, reassociated back into the mind of nature. Now, that's evolution by natural selection, one on one for you. Uh, life is what the dissociation looks like. So, only the life that could keep itself alive and could reproduce stuck around, and we are its descendants. The ones that couldn't survive, just died, were reabsorbed uh, into those transpersonal mental processes in the few, broad field of subjectivity of nature. Now, what does it take for a dissociative process to survive? Well, it takes interacting with its cognitive environment or to speak the language of the dashboard. You need to find food. You need to be able to protect yourself against harm from the environment. So you need to collect information about the environment. From a dissociative process, that means building up a dashboard. From the perspective of a dissociative process that is dissociated from the environment, cannot access the environment directly, what's the best thing? It's to construct a dashboard. 
In other words, to start, start perceiving the world. And to perceive the world in a safe way, you need the dashboard. Because otherwise, you melt into hot soup and you become reabsorbed into mind at large. So that's, that's why we have a dashboard. The dashboard is an artifact of life. In other words, an artifact of dissociation. If you are no longer dissociated, then you don't need a dashboard because now you can directly access whatever mental contents are out there because now you're not observing nature. Now you are nature from a first-person perspective. But for as long as we are dissociated within a dashboard, and that's why dashboards exist, to maintain the dissociation going, to keep it going for a little longer. So the physical world is itself a product of life because the physical world is the dashboard. The physical world is not the world as it is in itself. It's an artifact of representation. Quantum mechanics becomes beautifully understandable if you regard it this way. Not only in the example I gave, but in many other aspects of quantum mechanics as well. Yeah, the only point that I didn't get is the, so how are we accounting the universal consciousness part? I mean, of course, this is again, this materialistic thinking which kicks in. Uh, how, again, how we are what? How, how uh, we are accounting the oh. uh, universal consciousness part. I mean, uh, because the nature as, as we are thinking, even if we are thinking in quantum mechanics way, uh, the ripples which are there, Still, we need to uh, somehow like, I mean, it's because, of course, you, you have ma made it clear that it's not panpsychism or solipsism. Uh, it is idealism, which is different than the, the fact of matter bearing a property as consciousness, right? Uh, but then what, like, what is that wetness of of H2 and O2 when it comes together, which is this universal consciousness. Okay. Does your thought have a length in meters? It doesn't. No. Uh, does your emotion have a weight in kilograms? It doesn't. Right? Now, if you have a if you have the emotion of sadness, so we, we agree your emotion does not have a weight in kilograms. But suppose that emotion is sadness. Sadness doesn't have a weight in kilograms. But you're very sad and now you're looking in the mirror and a tear flows down your eye. That tear is what your sadness looks like from the outside point of view, right? When you're sad from within, other people looking at you will see a tear running down your face. Does that tear have a certain weight in grams? Yes. Now it does. Lo and behold, now it does. That weight in grams is a needle on a dashboard pointing at a number. X grams is the weight of that tear. And we talk about a tear. But the thing in itself is the sadness. Is the sadness that presents itself as a tear. My sadness, when represented on your dashboard, looks like a tear and you can attach a number to it x grams for that tear if my facial muscles contort because i'm crying you can attach other numbers to it angles lengths you know centimeters here centimeters that way this and that angle those geometrical relationships and all of, all, all of those numbers you can you can paste them to scales on the dashboard now 
Of course, all those numbers only appear when you do have a dashboard. And for that, you have to be alive. So how was the universe? How do we account for the universe before the dashboard, before the tear? Well, obvious, it's the sadness. It's the one thing that is the thing in itself. Everything else is a chain of representations and descriptions. So before life ever arose, there were experiential states in nature. Not like my sadness. My sadness is a product of four, 4 billion years of evolution. Uh, we cannot anthropomorphize the mind of nature. It's probably a very, very simple mind that never underwent evolutionary pressures. So it has very simple experiential states. We cannot imagine or visualize what they are, other than to say they are very simple. Um, but they were experiential states. There was something it was like to be the universe before the first life arose. The storm outside is still there, whether there is an airplane making measurements and displaying the results on a dashboard or not. The storm outside is what it, it is like to be the universe from a first-person perspective. It's the universe's own first-person experiential states. It's the sadness, something akin to the sadness before the sadness gains a physical representation. Because for that physical representation to arise, you need an altar or a dissociated element, which is life, with its own internal dashboard that evolution has constructed in order to represent those sadness states in a dashboard, which then enables us to attach numbers to, to describe the dynamics of the dashboard. In other words, to describe the physical world. So that's how you account for nature as it is in itself. It's endogenous, first-person experiential states. And physicality is a representation of those states that we make upon measuring those states. And since I already mentioned about solipsism and um, uh, panpsychism, uh, how the dashboard will look different if we uh, talk about uh, the other two ways. Well, notice that I just reduced the rank of the physical world. I just said that what we call the physical world is not the world outside as it is in itself. It's just a representation thereof that our cognitive apparatus creates for to, to give us a way to navigate the world safely without dying just by interacting with the world. Um, under panpsychism, the physical world is the world as it is in itself. It's not just a representation. There is material stuff out there regardless of whether it's being measured or not. There are elementary subatomic particles, or just particles, I'll just say particles now. Uh, there are particles out there with standalone existence. It just so happens that in addition to their physical properties like mass, charge, momentum, those particles also have experiential properties. There is something it is like to be an electron. There is something it is like to be a quark. And those experiential properties uh, of the particles inside uh, our head somehow combine with one another to give rise to our conscious inner life. That's panpsychism. Now, that, there are many reasons why panpsychism is wrong. One is already clear. You know, the world as it is in itself, physics is telling us, is not made of particles. Particles are the pixels of a panel on the dashboard. <laughs> It's, it's the, pixel, the pixelation of the representation, not of the world as it is in itself. But even if you would grant that there are 
these things we call particles out there, panpsychism would still be demonstrably false. And the reason is simple. When we say particles today, since the end of the 1940s, when physicists, well, at, at least well-informed physicists, it's surprising how many uninformed physicists out there yeah, there are today, but informed physicists have known since the end of the 1940s that what we call particle is not a particle at all. We use this word only metaphorically and for historical reasons. A particle is a local excitation of a field, a quantum field. Um, if you imagine the quantum field as the surface of a lake, a particle is a ripple in the lake. And the particle has physical properties, charge, mass, momentum, just like the ripple has. The ripple has a certain height, a certain thickness, a certain length, a certain speed, a certain direction of movement, a certain mass. Uh, yet you cannot reach into the lake and grab the ripple and lift the ripple out of the lake. The ripple is not a thing. The ripple is a doing. It's a behavior of the lake. Ultimately, there is no ripple. There is only the lake. Rippling is what the lake does. But we talk about the ripple as a thing metaphorically. There is no such a thing as a ripple. There is nothing to the ripple but the lake rippling. The ripple is a doing. It's not a thing. Now, in exactly the same way, under quantum field theory, which is the rel relativistic extension of uh, quantum theory, um, particles are ripples on the lakes we call the quantum fields. There are, there are 17 different quantum fields. Every electron is a ripple on the lake of electronness. Every quark is a ripple on the lake of quarkness. You can, you can see them this way. Uh, and we talk of them as particles, as things, for the same reason that we talk of a ripple as if it were a thing. But there are no particles, there are no ripples, there is only the field or the lake. For the panpsychist, this is terrible. This makes panpsychism inconsistent because the panpsychist needs particles to be like little marbles. So the little marbles with spatial boundaries inside my head combine to form my consciousness. And the little marbles inside your head in another location in space combine to form your consciousness. And because these little marbles have spatial boundaries, your consciousness cannot reach into mine. And, and I cannot reach into your thoughts because our marbles are in different points of space and they have spatial boundaries. They are marbles. But now, if there are no particles, if there are only fields, then all the fields that underlie you, your location in space, underlie my location in space. The electrons in your head are ripples of the same field, the same thing as the electrons in my head. And there is only that field which has no spatial boundaries. Quantum fields are not, do not have spatial boundaries. They span the entirety of the universe uh, under quantum theory. And therefore, the panpsychist cannot explain why I can't read your thoughts or why I'm a different subject than you are. And the panpsychist cannot escape this because they have to attribute consciousness as a fundamental property to an entity that is, that is itself fundamental. But the only fundamental entity, and we have known that since the 1940s, the only fundamental entities are the quantum fields because there are no particles, there are no ripples. Particles and ripples are doings of the field. You cannot lift the ripple from the lake. You cannot lift the electron from the electron. Well, the electron is in the electromagnetic quantum field. No, 
yeah, yeah. The electron is in the electromagnetic quantum field. The photon, uh, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. That's correct. What I said. Yeah. So panpsychism doesn't hold up to to scrutiny. It's uh, it it contradicts physics. So it's it's definitely, certainly, categorically wrong. Uh, and even if it didn't, it would still have many other problems, like the combination problem. How can two subjects combine to form a higher level con a subject? Is this coherent? There are good arguments that this is not coherent at all. Uh, but we don't need to get into that because it contradicts physics. So that's the end of it. <laughs> yeah. So panpsychism is uh, materialism in double trouble. You could, well, some would say it's materialism in half trouble. <laughs> <laughs> because it manages to evade the, the hard problem of consciousness, but it creates other problems of its own. So I would say it's panpsychism is materialism in equal trouble, just with new clothes. Yeah. And the solipsism, uh, which denies that there is uh, a physical world out there uh, apart from my dashboard. Well, an idealist would deny that there is a physical world out there in and of itself. An idealist would say, what I call a physical world is my dashboard of instruments. And you have another dashboard of instruments that is also physical. Uh, and everybody has its own, or his or her own dashboard of instruments. Now, those dashboards show measurements that are consistent with one another. You would describe the physical world in a way consistent with my description. And the reason for that is that those, all those dashboards are displaying measurements of the same thing, the world as it is in itself, outside. It's not physical. Physicality is in the dashboard, but all dashboards are displaying measurements of the same real world out there. Uh, so the idealist would deny that there is a physical world out there, but would acknowledge that there is a world out there, separate and independent of my thoughts, my wishes, my, my desires, my fantasies, and I can repeat my affirmation and affirmations a million times. The world will not care about what I wish it were or how I want it to be. No, it, it, it is its own thing and would still be around whether I am around or not. That world is there. It's just not physical. That's the idealist position. Now, the solipsist would go much beyond that and would say, there is no world out there at all, physical or otherwise. And as a matter of fact, you are not conscious, Jitender. If I were a solipsist, you would only exist insofar as the images I perceive. You would be an element of my dream. There would be nothing it's like to be you. You don't exist. You're just a puppet inside of my own dream. I am making you up. If I were a solipsist, that's what I would have to believe. Now imagine a conference of solipsists. <laughs> <laughs> Each one of them thinking they are the only person in the conference. Everybody else is just figments of their imagination. Um, there is a sort of um, tacitly acknowledged idea in philosophy that um, solipsism is, is not something we talk about. Because if you believe in solipsism, then there is no point in talking about it. Because you're talking to the figments of your own imagination. So if we talk, then it, it's a, it presupposes that we are not solipsists, and therefore we can do philosophy collectively. Um, but there is also this notion in philosophy that solipsism, as the most skeptical uh, uh, metaphysics, um, cannot be defeated, cannot be refuted. You cannot refute the notion that maybe your own mind is making this whole shit up. 
and that there is nobody out there. There's nothing out there. It's all your, it's all your private dream. There is no mind of nature. There is no world behind the dashboard. Nothing, nothing. Um, and, and people think, many philosophers think this cannot be, strictly speaking, uh, refuted. I think it can. I think it can be refuted on the grounds of parsimony, which would be confusing because you might say, well, solipsism is the most parsimonious. I don't think it is. And the reason is the following. Um, I'll tell you a story. When I was a teenager, um, I had a cousin, an older cousin, female, mm -hmm. uh, older cousin, and she was in love with her boyfriend. Uh, she was totally obsessive about uh, her boyfriend. And I watched her behavior, that strange behavior of somebody meddling love. It's totally logical behavior. It, it looks very strange and incomprehensible from the eyes of a, of a child, which I was. Um, but later in life, I fell in love myself. And now I understood her behavior. I understood why she was behaving that way. Now, if solipsism were true, how could I have dreamed up her image while I was a child? How could I have dreamed up her behavior if I hadn't yet experienced love myself? I couldn't have done that. I didn't know what love was, so I couldn't have projected that on that image of my dreaming. I couldn't have made her up. I only found it out later. Um, so I think on these grounds, the best, most parsimonious explanation for the behavior of other people is that they too are conscious, just like I am. And that they are not just figments of my imagination because they are behaving in ways that I only come to understand later in my life. So how come I could have pictured them or, or, or conjured them up behaving entirely consistently with an experience I still didn't have, you see? Uh, but in any case, solipsism, even if you, if, if you disagree with my refutation, it's not something we can talk about anyway. So it's useless to hold an interview <laughs> on solipsism <laughs> because if I truly yeah. believed it or you, we wouldn't be talking about it. Yeah, true. And then, um, so if we think of idealism, which, I mean, of course it's, uh, it, it seems so poetic in, in general, you know, uh, thinking about everything is connected uh, with me um, or with each other. And, and so, so the point being, how do we think of uh, consciousness in other species, for example, uh, when we are talking about um, the dissociativeness itself, um, is it just the life? I mean, that's where we draw the line, or uh, it can be also uh, species dependent. And then what about neurons and in this part, because there are many species which don't have uh, those neurons itself. I think what we call life, or to be more technical, what we call metabolism, you know, uh, protein folding, DNA transcription, mitosis, all, all that stuff, or ATP burning, all that stuff we call metabolism, that is the giveaway that an entity is actually a dissociated alter of, of the mind of nature, that field of subjectivity that underlies nature. And the reason I say that is that um, all other creatures whose behavior suggests to us that they are conscious like we are, 
they all metabolize. They are all alive. A rock gives us no sign that it has conscious in their life. But an amoeba does. An amoeba or a paramecium under the microscope, a single-celled organism, it goes after food. It runs away from danger. Uh, um, uh, there are amoeba who can build little houses for themselves using particles of mud at the bottom of a lake. They construct beautiful little houses, little shells out of mud, uh, and they inhabit it. I mean, it's amazing. Now, ants, they, they practice agriculture, they practice architecture and engineering. They build bridges. Uh, they construct uh, uh, buildings like uh, uh, ant nests. Termites construct buildings with uh, ventilation systems, very well-designed ventilation systems to keep the termites cool. I mean, this is stuff we do. Um, so we have every reason to believe that termite, like us, is also conscious, that the amoeba, like us, is also conscious, let alone the cat or the dog or the whale or the elephant. Um, and to confirm this, if you look deep into the physiology of other living forms, I mean, nothing could be more different from us on, on the surface appearance than an amoeba or a whale or a tree, right? They're completely, I mean, life is so radically different across species. There's nothing, how to say, uh, we look nothing like an anteater. <laughs> <laughs> or 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 a coral, uh, or uh, or a sponge, a sea sponge. We are completely different. But if you look under the microscope, you will see that all life metabolizes, and that's the unifying thing. So to me, that's if not proof, it's incredibly compelling, empirical reason to say that life is what correlates with private conscious inner experience, private inner experience. And the word private is important, inner experience that is only accessible to the entity itself. And my thoughts are only accessible to me in principle. Um, and empirically, we have reason to say the same about other living creatures, but not about a rock, not about a table, not about a cell phone or a computer or the internet, because that stuff based, I mean, I, I also have a doctorate in computer engineering. I, I've done AI for, for many years. I've done processor design, reconfigurable computing, which is computing getting closer to life in the view. I mean, my, my PhD thesis, uh, my first PhD thesis was on reconfigurable computing architectures, uh, which some would claim, oh, that's you know, silicon uh, uh, getting close to life. But it, it, if you look into how it works and into the details of the structure, it looks nothing like us. We have absolutely no reason to think that a silicon computer has private experiential states, none whatsoever. So no, I don't think my phone is, is conscious in and of itself. Now, it is in consciousness. It exists by virtue of consciousness. Because if my conscious inner life looks like my body, then the conscious inner life of mind at large, nature, apart from living organisms, looks like the inanimate universe. That's what the inanimate universe is. It's the body of mind at large. In other words, universal consciousness, apart from living creatures, which are dissociated from it. Uh, uh, 
the, the inanimate universe is the body of mind at large. It is what mind at large looks like when represented on our dashboard. And in that sense, the, my telephone, the computer, the rock, these are just subsets of pixels of that one image that we call the inanimate universe. There is something it is like to be the inanimate universe as a whole, but I don't think there is anything it is like to be a cell phone. In the same sense that I don't think there is anything it is like to be one molecule of neurotransmitter inside my head. There is only something it is like to be the total thing, the total image, Bernardo Castro, my entire body, my entire metabolizing organism. But there is nothing it is like to be one molecule of neurotransmitter inside my head in and of itself. That molecule is just a subset of the pixels of the image I call my body. In the same way, the telephone is just a subset of the pixels of the holistic image we call the inanimate universe. And the inanimate universe is conscious, but not a arbitrary subset of pixels of that image. So what about uh, the artificial life, if we'll be able to make it in the future, in the lab, would it be conscious? If we succeed in artificially inducing the creation of metabolizing organisms, then yes, I think what that will mean, now speaking the language of the dashboard, we created a living organism. Speaking the language of the thing in itself, we have artificially induced dissociation in the field of subjectivity that underlies nature. These two statements are the same statement. They are talking about the same thing. They are saying the same thing. One from the perspective and the language of the dashboard and one from the perspective, the other from the perspective and the language of the thing in itself, the world as it is prior to being measured by sensors. So yes, I think, uh, and, I, and I actually don't see any a priori or in principle reason why that shouldn't be possible. Uh, dissociation obviously is a natural process or to say the same thing again, life obviously is a natural process. We are natural beings. I see no reason why we couldn't eventually figure out how it happens and, and therefore induce it ourselves. But I don't think it will be based on silicon or that it would look like an artificial neural network. I think it will be a warm and moist metabolizing little thing, <laughs> <laughs> just like we are. And so you think the dissociativeness would only work at the life level means it's it can't happen afterwards in in any way well I, I i cannot categorically discard it for the same reason that i cannot i cannot categorically discard the possibility that the flying spaghetti monster exists and is making the planets go around their orbits i mean you know if there is an invisible dimension and there is a flying spaghetti monster there with his invisible noodly appendages <laughs> doing this stuff we model under the word gravity. I, can I categorically refute that? I can't. I can't categorically refute that there is a teapot in the orbit of Saturn right now. For all I know, aliens came to the Earth unseen and stole a teapot and then dumped it somewhere when they were going back home and the teapot got captured by the gravitational pull of Saturn and now it's in the orbit of Saturn. I cannot refute these things. I can only say we have absolutely no good reason to take them seriously. So in exactly the same vein, I cannot refute that we might create a dissociative process in the mind of nature 
that doesn't metabolize, but instead is based on silicon and electrical pulses. I cannot refute it, but I don't think we have any good reason at all to entertain that possibility as plausible, just in the same way that we don't have any good reason at all to entertain the flying spaghetti monster as a plausible possibility. <laughs> so uh, for artificial consciousness, uh, basically we need artificial life or artificial beings, which would be, um, which would qualify the dissociative, uh, you know, the need Keep of- in mind, there is no artificial consciousness. Consciousness is the ground level of nature. Whatever happens in nature happens within consciousness. What I meant is um, artificially private consciousness or an artificially induced dissociative process in consciousness. Consciousness itself, in my view, is the ground level. It's, it, it's what there is before we start thinking, before we start engineering, before we start doing anything. We live in consciousness. We are made of consciousness. Even the dashboard is consciousness stuff because the physical world you see around you is a world of qualities. It's a world of redness, of bitterness, of uh, texture, of, of melody. Um, all of this is in consciousness. So you don't create consciousness artificially, but you may artificially induce a dissociation in the field of consciousness and thereby artificially create privateness in consciousness. That I think uh, there is no a priori reason to believe that it will never be possible. I, I actually think it, it is. And in fact, I think it will happen this century. Wow, that's, I mean, I think that's um, quite optimistic. Um, let's, let's hope that it'll happen this century. <laughs> um, so, I mean, thinking of life in this way, it's, it's already, as I said, idealis idealism is poetic when, when we start thinking that everything is connected, it's, it, it, it's amazing. And so what do you think of death then? It is just then being part of the bigger or universal yeah. consciousness? If life is what the dissociative process in this field of subjectivity that, that underlies nature uh, looks like, if life is the image of dissociation, then the end of life is the end of the dissociation. And that's all there is to it. It's the reabsorption of our conscious inner life into a much broader cognitive context. It is the end of individual identity. Um, in the same sense that um, when you wake up from a dream, the individual identity of your dream avatar ends. Let me speak clearly here. When you wake up from a dream, your dream avatar is dead. It's toast, it's gone. But you don't mourn the death of your dream avatar because instantly when you wake up, you realize that you were never the dream avatar. You just thought you were it. During the dream, you think you're your dream avatar. You think that the trees and the buildings and the cars and the other people in the dream, they are not you. When you wake up, you realize that you were the dream avatar and you were everything else as well. In other words, there is a sense in which you never were just a dream avatar. The dream avatar was something you were doing and now you're not doing it anymore. And you don't mourn the death of your dream avatar when you wake up. Make no mistake, your dream avatar dies when you wake up. 
So when we die, I think we do die as individual entities. The Bernardo Castrup is toast <laughs> when I'm dead. He's gone. Good riddance. Good news. <laughs> um, but Bernardo Castrup is something that mind of nature was doing. And later it's not doing it anymore. I don't think the core subjectivity in me, the thing I truly am and have always been and will always be and can never get rid of, that subjectivity, that core subjectivity in me, that, that I-ness without a narrative, without a date of birth, without a profession, without a body that looks this and that way, without this or that trauma, that core I-ness that I actually am, when I die, death happens within that core I-ness. It's something that that core I-ness experiences. I think the, the true I experiences the, the process of death. I don't think that core I-ness will mourn the death of Bernardo Castro. No. I actually think it will be more like a you, hooray, you know. <laughs> Finally, we are done with this. Um, it's not like I'm looking forward to it. I'm scared of death because I think I will experience death. And I don't know what it will feel like. So I am scared of it. But after that scary process is done with, I don't think I will be upset that it ended. No, I think it makes no sense to even imagine that the mind of nature could be upset after stop doing something that it was just doing before. It's just a doing. It's like being upset because your dream avatar died when you woke up. That's not what we do. And how does this idealism view um, plays a role in when it comes to meaning and purpose um, in life? I mean, of course, it's again big topic, but that's, oh, that's that's it changes everything. Uh, look, I think it changes everything, but not for the reasons you suggested before. You were talking about connectedness and oneness. Uh, a materialist can make the same claim. There are very good physical reasons to think that all particles in the universe are ultimately entangled because they all, they were all created together in the original singularity. And if they were entangled once, since the universe is the sum total of what there is, there is nothing outside the universe that could make the universe decohere. Then if they were once entangled, then they are entangled right now. And if I am a material being made of particles, then those particles are entangled with everybody else and everything else. You could make a claim of oneness under materialism as well. Um, I don't think that's where the difference lies. The difference lies in the following. For the materialist, mentation, mind, experience, insight are epiphenomena. They are ephemeral they come and go very easily and when you die all of your insights are gone everything you learned the difficult process of becoming a mature adult is all for nothing because all of those experiences they are gone um, mental stuff disappears when the physical structure of the body unravels under materialism and therefore ultimately as far as mental stuff is concerned which is all we have all we have is mental stuff. Uh, it's all for nothing. All of your suffering is for nothing. All of your pain is for nothing. Everything you learned, it's lost. All of your insights are lost and gone forever and will make absolutely no difference in the grand scheme of things because the grand scheme of things is unconscious and it's a mechanism, it's mechanical. Uh, and whatever element of it is not mechanical, it's purely random. Uh, it's for no purpose. 
It has no end, no telos, nothing. That's the problem. It's not oneness. It's not connection. You have all of that on the materialism. The problem of materialism is that experience is nothing ultimately. Um, but under idealism, everything you learned, all of your insights, all of your suffering, serves an ultimate mental meaning. Meaning can only reside in mentality. If the very word meaning implies connotation. And connotation is a cognitive association. It can only exist, can only exist in cognitive space, in mental space. Um, everything you learned in life, everything you figured out, all of the insights you had, when you die and your dissociative boundary dissolves, all of your insights are just seeded in a broader cognitive context, the mind of nature. Through you, the universe is learning something. Through you, the universe is figuring something out, very modest as it may be, and probably is, given how infinitesimal, infinitesimally small this rock we are on is in the scale of the universe. So let alone the insights of little monkeys running around that, that rock. Um, small as it may be, it is something. And it's not for nothing. It contributes to something. Um, death has been, uh, in the West at least, mythologically portrayed as, as the reaper. And the reaper has a harvesting, harvesting tool, right? How you call that tool? Scythe? No. Sickle? I forgot the name. Um, it's a harvesting tool. Uh, and that's mythology reflecting a, a, an intuition, which is a death is a harvest. Uh, and what's that harvest? Well, it's all the insights that a cognitive alter, a, co a dissociated alter uh, has accumulated through life, they are released into the broader context of the mind of nature when you die. It's literally a harvesting. Um, if you don't die, everything you know is known only to you. But if you die, everything you know is now known to everything, is, is now known to the mind of nature to the consciousness of nature. I use mind and consciousness interchangeably. Uh, in the West, that's okay. I know that in the East, it's not. But what I mean by mind is phenomenal consciousness, which is what people in the East mean by consciousness. Um, so life becomes meaningful. Even your suffering becomes meaningful. Even if you achieve, between quotes, nothing in your life, according to the standards of modern Western capitalism. In other words, you build no company, you create no computer, you make no inventions, you achieved nothing. Actually, you've achieved everything because the suffering of thinking that you're useless, that you've achieved nothing, is what brings you to certain insights about the nature of mind itself, what mind does to itself, how it tortures itself, what is important to mind and therefore caused you pain because you lacked it, uh, or how mind weaves delusions and illusions for itself, how it weaves narratives in terms of which it experiences itself. All of that, which you learn in an otherwise useless, unproductive life, all of that, that's the Holy Grail. That's the thing that this is all for. That, that's what it's about. So you go to your deathbed think, thinking, I achieved nothing, my life was useless. When you, in fact, your bag is full of gold, you collected a lot of gold, but you live in a culture that tells you that gold is invisible. It's for nothing. 
it's thin. Uh, and you're collecting it all of your life, and it's heavy, you're suffering. But you think it's nothing. Even though it's weighing down on you, you think it's nothing. And you die sad, only to realize that, hey, you brought, you brought gold to the tribe. And you probably have the biggest loss of your existence the moment you realize that. <laughs> uh, which is a pity, because you could have been having this loss now, right now, if we were a slightly more sane society than we are. Yeah, it's it's amazing. So um, I think I have two questions, uh, two more questions. Uh, so uh, the first question of, first of all, I mean, your take on the flow of time. This was really amazing, uh, really great, because I think those examples were um, really on spot because I was reading other books and other uh, uh, content on the time and the debates which are going on, especially uh, from quantum mechanics point of view, where mostly people refute the existence of time, etc. So let's talk about that. What if the flow of time really exists? I mean, that explanation is, I think, amazing. Well, the the, the feeling that time flows obviously exists. The question is, is it illusory or not? Uh, illusions exist. Illusions are not nothing. There's a difference between having an illusion and not having it. So there is such a thing we call illusion. But it may be illusory in the sense that it may not correspond to an actual state of affairs. Um, and the feeling of the flow of time, I think, is an illusion. We never experience the flow of time. We only ever experience the present moment. Um, the past is not there. You cannot point and say there's the past. The past is not a thing. It's not there. Uh, what we call the past is an experience of memories. And we experience memories now and only ever now. Um, the future is not there. You cannot point somewhere and say there's the future. It's a thing. No, it's not a thing. It's not there. It doesn't exist. What we call the future is an expectation that we experience. And that expectation is experienced now. And only ever now. And then you might say, well, but at least the present exists. It has to, right? <laughs> but how big is it? Well, it's as small as you can possibly make, smaller than you can imagine it to be. Because it doesn't matter how short the now is, you can still cut it up and say there is a past, there is a now, and there is a future. Um, the moment you start opening your mouth to say now, oh, it's gone. <laughs> it's it's already so the president the, the present is infinitesimally small and yet it's all there is it's within that infinitesimally small thing that the past is the future is and the present is everything that has ever existed will ever exist or exists conceivable or not or not imaginable or not everything the grand total of all facts of existence exist in an infinitesimally small present, which forces us to the conclusion that everything exists in nothing. It's the only tenable, uh, uh, careful, rational conclusion you can extract, the only tenable one. Everything exists in a kind of nothing. And the solidity and, and, and extent of existence are mental illusions. Um, 
the sum total of existence is incredibly thin. It's, it's, it's almost not there. And almost not there. And yet it feels immense, eternal. You know, imagine 3.8 billion years since the Big Bang. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All of that exists in a kind of nothing. And that's the only reasonable conclusion you can extract. So two things, I mean, even if, for example, the scientists, they uh, settle down the, this debate over time, uh, whether it exists, doesn't exist, whether it's fundamental or emergent, still for our lives, this meaning would be, I think, much more profound that the, you know, live in a present moment, as they say. Well, well I'm a Western guy. Um, um, you could say that um, what I said meant we have to live in the present, in the present, sorry, in the present, insofar as my argument was that there is only the present. But I also said the present is infinitesimally small. Um, from a, how to say, a value-based perspective, um, as a Western person, and I've come to accept me as a Western mind. It took me a long time um, to accept that, to accept my own inheritance, my own line, my own background, my own origins, uh, because there's so much wrong about the Western mind that uh, when you start growing up and you realize how much wrong there is with it, you go like, oh, no, no, no. And there was a while when people started telling me that my philosophy echoed um, Advaita Vedanta and the writings of the Upanishads, I flirted a lot with the idea, oh, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm actually an Indian mind. Um, and I would feel like, uh, I, I couldn't feel proud because I knew that that's not my origin. It's, I, I can't claim that. That would be appropriation. I, I can't claim that. But I fantasized about it. <laughs> let, let me put it that way. I fantasized of being in the philosophical line of the Eastern sages, even though I, I have always known myself enough to know that uh, there is nothing grand about me. Um, but the fantasy was there. But now I accept myself as a, as a Western mind. And the Western mind cares about the past, what we call the past. So although it is an illusion, Again, as I said, an illusion is not nothing. There is a difference between there being an illusion and not, there not being an illusion. The illusion is there. So do you care about it even knowing that it is an illusion? I care. I care about the past. I care about traditions. Um, I care about the philosophical school I represent and contribute to and, and was born from. Um, so in that sense, I'm, 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 I don't live as per the Eastern adage that uh, there is only the present, forget about the past. There's no future, there is no past. Because to me, that means I ignore tradition, I ignore my ancestors, and, um, and I don't feel that way. And I've come to accept that I don't feel that way. I've come to accept that the way I feel like is that I, I, I'm... I'm holding a flame now that has been passed from person to person over two and a half thousand years. Well, 2,600 uh, years. 
since Parmenides gave birth to the Western mind uh, as we know it today. Um, and so I, I, I experience my life in a context. I experience what I'm doing as just the tip of a process that has begun long ago and as a tiny part of a process that is unfathomably bigger than I am and which is going somewhere that is unfathomably bigger than I am. And yes, that long past and that rich future are illusions, but I do care about those illusions and I couch my life in those illusions um, because some illusions are revealing. Some illusions reveal something true about nature. They are illusions and yet they hint at something true about the mind of nature and I honor it today. Yeah, and so so when you say that you you have a Western mind or you are a Western mind, um, so do you somehow um, include this cultural, um, how do you say the cultural effect on the on the development of the brain or mind, or is it because I mean, especially once we think of universal consciousness. Uh, it shouldn't be where we are born, right? When I think it, that may not have really the, the the relevance. So are you implying that the cultural effects? No, no, the Western mind has nothing to do with ethnicity or place of birth. It's a, it's a certain value system. It's a, a certain way of looking at the world and being in the world. That's the best definition. It's a way of being in the world. And uh, I know, black people who are western through and through has nothing to do with ethnicity i mean i don't even believe races exist in human beings the the, the scientific notion of race is not applicable to human beings we do not have enough genetic variation and consistent uh, group forming to talk about races there are no races uh, let alone places of birth there are western minds being born in thailand right now it's uh, it's just that the history had a sort of a geographical genesis in, in Greece, uh, which we associate with the West. So I use the term Western mind, but it, it's not geography. It's a way of being in the world. And uh, it's not better, and I like to think it's not worse than the other ways of being in the world that, uh, that are in Eastern minds. Uh, in the Buddhist mind, in the Hindu mind, in the Japanese mind, and the Korean mind, and these are all different minds, or the, the Confucian, Confucian mind uh, in China. These are all different ways of being in the world. The, the native South Americans, which unfortunately are hardly around today. Um, but so it's not better, it has its problems, and I like to think it's not much worse either. It's just different. And, and I, I, I celebrate the varieties of perspective, the variety of perspectives that uh, human beings embody. Uh, I think it's extraordinary. Um, I think my life would be a lot less rich if there weren't Indian philosophy around. Um, to be, if, even if you do not recognize yourself in Indian philosophy, even if your appreciation for it is mostly intellectual and not embodied, even then, because it is different, it highlights to you how you are, how you look at the world. 
because it's different from what you're reading about how other people are in the world. You see what I mean? Yeah. It's sort of, uh, it, it, and this is, I, I think, uh, a critical tool for learning and insight. It's important for a mind to regard how other minds go about the business of being, because that gives you an idea of the scope of mentation, the scope of what it means to be a mind, how much more it can be than what you experience yourself, how broad mind is. And imagine when you go into the minds of non-human beings. Now, I, I do this exercise, uh, maybe I'm cheating myself, but I do this exercise of trying to get into the mind of my cat. <laughs> or trying to get into the mind of a bird. Uh, I don't know whether there is any tradition for meditations that do this, but it's something I spontaneously do all the time. The other day, I spent such a long time, I, I am ashamed to review how much, <laughs> trying to get into the mind of an ant that was going over my washing bowl. <laughs> and I was like, it, it's not like I decided to do that. I just got sucked into it spontaneously, you know? trying to see the world through the eyes of that little thing walking on my washing basin. <laughs> anyway, variety is, is good, should be celebrated. Yeah, and it's so um, enriching as well. So when you, when you were trying to be uh, in the mind of your cat, uh, were you mean to yourself or it was... <laughs> Catness is a... A very peculiar state of consciousness. Um, I, we, we, of course, we don't have words for that because it's not a shared experience. So there is no word I can use to try to convey to you my hallucination of what catness means. <laughs> uh, maybe it's not a hallucination, but it's, um, it's a very, very peculiar, from our perspective, way of being in the world. It's, it's very different than to be human. It, it has a, a very clear quality to it, very, very clear. Um, it has a scent, a kind of smell, not literally a smell, but that's the best I can say to try to describe it. <laughs> yeah, for me, it's exciting to see you uh, thinking about catness, uh, you know, thinking about that experience. That's amazing. So let's go back to the, the science part. So uh, now where do we stand on science of consciousness? So let's say that if we take idealism as a, a view uh, for consciousness, um, then what do we need to do for, in terms of science of consciousness? We'll be dealing with only these neural correlates that we measure uh, different brain activity, you know, and get happy if this if the brain activity is lower when there is uh, in the case of psychedelic experiences, etc. Uh, we are in a crucial point now, I think, a point in which the level of absurdity of the hypothesis being put forward is becoming ludicrous. Um, so ludicrous that it tells me it's unsustainable. It cannot go on like this. For instance, we were talking about earlier about psychedelics reducing brain activity, of course, uh, a lot of grant money was dished out to to try and find something in the brain that does increase when you have a mind-boggling trance, right? Because if materialism is right, something in your brain has to increase to account for the intensity and richness of the experience. 
And they tried many things, um, but they seem to have converged. And this is just an example. They seem to have converged on a, on a hypothesis called the anthropic brain hypothesis. Um, that's what they pedal now, what they put forward. The other, the other possibilities sort of fell out along the way by, by the wayside. Um, and the key empirical substantiation for the anthropic brain hypothesis is the following. Statistically speaking, if you take a large number of placebo drug pairs, in other words, people who actually got a psychedelic and their brain, brain activity was measured, and, and then people who did not get psychedelics only got a placebo and their brain activity was measured. So each person who took a psychedelic is paired with a person who took a placebo, and then you have a, a pair, you know, a, a, and you have a statistics collected for these pairs. Uh, drug versus placebo. And it turns out that there is one thing in the brain that uh, does increase with statistical significance. And they call it by big names like complexity, entropy. Um, I'll tell you what it is. It's brain noise. It's the equivalent of TV static in the brain. It's brain activity that uh, does not fall into any recognizable pattern. It's completely random. Noise, TV static in your brain. It turns out that uh, there is an, a statistically significant increase in brain noise for the drug side of the drug placebo pair compared to the placebo. Now I'll tell you by how much that increase is in a scale of noise from zero to 100, Psychedelics have more noise by 0.001. So um, it's a, a hardly measurable, but statistically significant increase in, in, in brain static. And a 0.001 increase in brain noise in a scale from 0 to 100 is put forward as a materialist account of the mind-boggling psychedelic experience. We need to be in a society that has lost touch with any innate sense of plausibility so much that it is able to put forward a hypothesis, like a ludicrous hypothesis like this with a straight face and still get grant money. Uh, the degree of our craziness is, is unfathomable. Um, and, and of course, this result is defended with the claim that it's statistically significant. You, know, you can make anything statistically significant. Um, to begin with, statistical significance, the threshold, the P threshold for statistical significance is entirely arbitrary. Somebody in the 1930s decided that it would be 0.05. Like it could as well be 0.04. And if it had been 0.04, this result would not be statistically significant. If it had been 0.06, uh, some results that are not considered serious today suddenly magically would become statistically significant. If you have enough drug placebo pairs and you filter your data enough based on different criteria, you can make stuff that is on the edge of statistical significance be statistically significant. And that's why many academic papers today, as a matter of policy, refuse to accept any work whose validity is based on statistical significance because it's bullshit. 
it's bullshit. Uh, people, it's what we call p-value engineering. And it's not necessarily malicious. People are not doing these things maliciously. You know, they are researchers. They get their salaries at the end of the month. They have performance appraisals. They have to publish. People do p-value engineering unconsciously. Um, the problem is that we have to have other methodologies. We have to part with this arbitrary nonsense of uh, uh, um, statistical significance. And then we wouldn't take seriously this kind of in-your-face bullshit as the anthropic brain hypothesis, which is absolutely ludicrous. Now, in any other field of human investigation that does not involve the word consciousness, you present a work like this based on this kind of empirical result, you know, the reviewers they would laugh at you and say, come on, get a life, be a serious researcher, please. But as it is, we present this as a great step forward in the neuroscience of consciousness. Grants are given out, careers are made, faces are splashed on newspapers. And the great advancement that is represented by this utter crap and nonsense that any reasonably neutral human being will be able to say, come on guys, get a fucking life. Sorry, sorry about the, the word, but get an F life. You know, get your act together. So we are in dire straits right now, but you know, history tells us that the darkest, bleakest point is precisely the point of turnaround. When you cannot go any lower, that's when you begin to go up. And if you ask me what we need to get there, there are so many things we need. There is one particular thing that is in my mind a lot right now. We, we can talk about that if you want. One yeah. intuition we have to correct uh, in the neuroscience of consciousness, in the neuroscience of mind. And that's one intuition that is so dominant that people forget that it's arbitrary, that it's an assumption, uh, not based on fact. People think it's a fact, and that's the following. The human brain is a compound mechanism. It's made of parts. It's made of neurons. Therefore, if consciousness is associated with the brain, consciousness itself needs to be compound. It needs to be made of parts that come together and combine. And this is what guides the neuroscience of consciousness today. We're trying to find brain regions that are responsible for this or that, and they communicate to one another and they form closed loops that uh, allow for information integration to cross a certain magical threshold called phi and, and ergo magically you are conscious. So the entire neuroscience of consciousness is based on this idea that the brain is compound, it's made of parts. And we have therefore to account for consciousness uh, as parts coming together by integrating information or whatever, you know. And this is absolutely unfounded, the very intuition that the brain is a compound uh, system is unfounded. And I, I'll try to explain why. The source of the conflation is to mistake growth for assemblage. We think of the brain as an entity that has been assembled. Like somebody came with a pair of tweezers and put all of those neurons next to one another. Constructing the brain by putting the neurons side by side or on top of each other, whatever. But th that's how a car is put together. The, 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 the structure of a car is defined and built from the outside in, 
you bring the parts together according to a pattern that an engineer thought about and you weld everything together and then you have a car. A car is assembled. A car is a compound object. A brain is not assembled. Uh, the structure of the brain has been defined from the inside out through growth. And this is, is very important to understand because neurons are not parts of the brain. Neurons are the inner structure of the brain that has a reason through growth. A, a human being, a grown human being, is still the original fertilized egg, the original zygote. No, so, so when your mom and your dad did their thing and there was a fertilized egg in the womb of your, of your mother, um, it's, a, it's a single cell. So you would say, well, it's not compound at a cellular level, it's a single cell. Now, if you believe that, then you have to believe that I am not compound right now. Because the way I was formed is that that single zygote created internal structure in a self-similar way in a fractal way, we call it mitosis, cell division. That's not assemblage. That's not parts being brought together. That's just an inner complexification, inner differentiation, inner structuring. Neurons are not parts. Neurons are just the inner differentiation of this one unitary thing that we still are, that the zygote was and we still are. I am still the zygote that was in the womb of my mother just a zygote that differentiated internally a lot, created a lot of internal structure. But if I was one thing as a zygote, I am still one thing now because I'm still the zygote. You are still the zygote. You, you see what I mean? Yeah. But we forget how the brain became what it is. So we look at the neurons and we think, oh, these are parts. It's like the tires of the car, the spark plugs, uh, uh, the the the... Crankshaft, no, these are not parts, all right? This is just internal structuring of the same unitary entity that you were when you were a zygote, when you were an egg, the second after fertilization. If you look at a, a human zygote immediately after fecundation, and you look at a human zygote three days later, and you put at those two images side by side with the same magnification, you see that the zygote had a boundary, and the embryo with eight cells three days later has the exact same boundary. Everything that's happening is happening within that boundary through a form of structuring that goes from the inside out. We are not assembled. We are not compound mechanisms. We are holistic entities. We are still the zygote we were in the beginning. So the brain is not compound. It's not made of cells. The brain is not made of cells. The brain looks like what we call cells because it has grown inner structure, inner differentiation that we happen to call cells. Cells are not parts. They are pixels of that image. And we arbitrarily carve out some pixels and we say that's a neuron. There's no such a thing as a neuron. There's only the brain. That carving out is arbitrary. You can literally carve it out. You can scoop a neuron out and put it in a, in a Petri dish and we say it's another thing. No, it's still the same thing. And the physical clue that it's still the same thing is that every cell in your body has an identical instance of this thing we call a, D a DNA. 
It's the commonality of DNA that tells you that cells are just the fractal inner structure of a unitary entity, not parts of a mechanism, not parts of an entity. Now, if people grasp this, if neuroscience grasp this, then the way we will conduct research about consciousness will, will be different. We will stop thinking in terms of parts, in terms of the combination of smaller subjects or subjectivities in a panpsychist way, which is what's happening. You know, uh, uh, Christoph Koch, the, the, one of the world's most preeminent neuroscientists, you know, the guy leading the neuroscience of consciousness, the leader of the brain project, you know, $100 million initiative to map the function of the brain. He is guided by constitutive panpsychism. He is guided by this notion that uh, matter is fundamentally conscious and that our human consciousness is built out of parts, little subjects that come together when they integrate information in the brain. It, it's mechanistic thinking about the brain as if the brain were made of parts. It bloody isn't. And if we stop thinking that way, I think new avenues of investigation will arise. Uh, new questions will be asked, new ways of thinking about the problem. We will interpret brain activity in a different way. We may go more towards a fractal or holographic way of thinking, which is much more promising to understand, I will use the word, the mechanics of mentation uh, than the paths we're pursuing today. We have to make that transition. But right now, it's the bleakest moment in the history of the neuroscience of consciousness. The level of absurdity that is accepted as advancement is ludicrous. It's just ludicrous. It's, it verges on the comical, and it would be if it weren't tragic. Yeah, it reminds me um, of uh, Donald Hoffman, because he uh, was saying the similar thing, that once we start uh, addressing this conscious agents, um, a hypothesis that he has that the, the, the consciousness is fundamental and um, then neuro, neuroscientists will realize that their job is much more difficult and then they have to look for the specific data structures. I would disagree with you. I think the neuroscientist's job will become much easier because right now it's impossible. Right now the hard problem basically means that you cannot deduce the qualities of experience from any neurological physical parameter. That's the hard problem. Um, so right now their work is impossible. Uh, if they understand patterns of brain activity as what mentation looks like, as opposed to the cause of mentation, the origin of mentation, if they realize that patterns of brain activity are the dashboard representation of inner mentation, no, it's the image of the phenomenon. Tremendous progress will be made because now we will have a much broader horizon uh, uh, about, uh, regarding the way we think about that image because we recognize it to be what it is. It's an image. What do the patterns in this image tell us? What do they suggest about how mind is going about things? Look, I just criticized um, Giulio Tononi's uh, um, information integration theory of consciousness and the phi threshold mm -hmm. and so on. Um, but the phi threshold is an empirical reality. It, it doesn't mean what they think it is. They think the phi threshold is when unconsciousness becomes conscious. No, the phi threshold is when consciousness becomes metaconscious and therefore becomes able to report on itself. 
when not only you experience, but you know that you experience, and then you can report to the neuroscientist, I am having this experience. That's how they figured out the phi threshold based on human reports. And human reports of experience only comes when you cross the threshold of meta-consciousness, meta-cognition, not consciousness. So it's not what they think it is, but it's an empirical reality. There is such a threshold. It is something else, but it exists. There is such a threshold. If these empirical facts are now understood in a different way, in a more correct way, less screwed up way, they will reveal a lot more about what's going on. I think the job of neuroscience, neuroscience will become, well, initially possible, because right now it's impossible. Uh, but not only that, the horizon will expand. Um, we will be seeing this with less obfuscating glasses. We will have clear glasses now to look at the evidence for what it actually is, the image of a phenomenon, something that betrays the nature of the phenomenon, not the cause of it, not the source of it, because that's where everything goes wrong in our thinking. That's where we formulate all the wrong questions and start asking ourselves, how is it possible that the number five got married? You see, that's the source of the craziness. Uh, so I, the future is bright, but the present is pretty pretty bleak yeah it's it's tragic yeah and, and especially when you think of you know all the technology that we need because with the present technology again we'll be limited with the neural correlates itself right we won't be uh, able to go into much details about uh, consciousness if we think of idealism in general i look i think the, own, the most promising way to understand mind is to introspect. Um, so it's not a scientific approach. I don't think the most promising approach to mind is, is the approach enshrined in the methodology of science, because mind is the one phenomenon of nature that we know from a first-person perspective. We don't need to put it under a microscope or use a measurement apparatus. Uh, we can introspect and have a direct acquaintance with our own minds and um, most philosophers of mind and most neuroscientists of consciousness um, have no idea what their own mind is they have they are extremely poor at introspection i had a debate with christoph koch and uh, rupert spira last year mm -hmm. um, and i was sort of playing the middle ground between the science and the introspection things and I could see the contrast between how Christoph came at it from a purely third-person perspective science and how Rupert came at it from a pure first-person perspective introspection. Um, and they just don't talk each other's language. They just talk past each other. And it became clear to me that Christoph does not maintain an introspective practice. He's not acquainted with what mind actually is from a first-person perspective. It became clear in his interaction with Rupert that he's not acquainted with mind at all. His own mind is very alienated from, from his rational reasoning. Uh, and in philosophy of mind, most philosophers of mind have not a clue about what mind is. They just don't introspect at all. Philosophy of mind for them is like a game of cards played on a table in which they translate mind into concepts and then print them in cards and then shuffle the cards around the table or the dominoes around the table trying to find the solution to the puzzle. Well, that, that's not where the puzzle is. Now, to, to study the mind objectively, 
you have to at least have some in-depth subjective acquaintance with your own mind. So you know what you're studying. You know what it is that you're studying. You know what mind is. You know how mind flows, how mind moves, how it is always trying to deceive itself, how it hides itself from itself, how it plays tricks, um, how it abstracts away from itself. You have to see that. You have to see how your mind dissociates itself from itself to protect yourself from bad memories or traumas. You have to see how your mind is always trying to cheat yourself, to cheat you. You have to see how your mind is always turning narratives into realities when they are not. You have to have this minimum acquaintance level, direct acquaintance level with this thing we call mind for your objective study of the mind through instrumentation to make any sense at all, or your conceptual study of mind through philosophy of mind to make any sense at all. Uh, but that's not what we see. What we see is that the people who try to study the mind from a philosophical or scientific perspective are extraordinarily childish when it comes to introspection, extraordinarily naive. They, they don't have a clue. They, they are completely unacquainted with their own minds. They don't know what it is that they are trying to study or to understand. They have no idea of the inner dynamics of mind. And, and that's a problem. That's, that's a huge problem. But notice that that's not a problem of science as a method. It's a problem of people as scientists. It's the naivete of people. It's the immaturity of people. Um, it is undoubtful. Uh, it is doubtless that uh, the scientific study of mind through the third-person perspective does add something. It's not the royal avenue. The royal avenue of the study of mind is introspection. It cannot be anything else. Can uh, the scientific exploration of the neurocorrelates add to introspective insights? I, for one, think it can. It can add a lot. It's not as important as introspection, but it can be extremely helpful. Look, there are, we don't have neurocorrelates of most psychiatric conditions, but we do have of some, and they have been helpful. Now, the neuroscience of mind has been less helpful than you, we were sold, like, uh, no, like SSRIs, no, this uh, uh, serotonin reuptake inhibitor um, uh, uh, antidepressants. Uh, that were sold on the premise that uh, you're depressed because you don't have enough serotonin in your in your brain. Uh, turn out that depressed people have the same level of serotonin as everybody else. And so it, it wasn't as helpful as we thought it was, but it doesn't mean that it's unhelpful at all. No, it is still helpful, um, but it's not about science only that we are talking about. We're talking about the people who engage in the methodology of science. And there, we are still children when it comes to the neuroscience of mind, because we are children when it comes to understanding mind from a first-person perspective. Yeah, so I think there we need uh, those paradigm shifts properly. Uh, but I don't know how many paradigm shifts we need to reach at a level to understand mind. <laughs> well, some are easy. Some just entail getting rid of some unexamined assumptions that have been mistakenly taken for facts. Like uh, this notion that the brain is a compound system. It's not, it's a system that has grown, it hasn't been assembled. Neurons are not parts, they are just 
sets of pixels of the image of a, a holistic phenomenon or understanding brain activity not as the generator of consciousness, but as what certain mental processes look like when represented on a dashboard. Um, so these are easy steps if because they are purely rational steps. They require a certain openness, and that's where things get difficult because most people just don't have that openness. They are committed to a certain metaphysics and they do not know what they do not know. They are unable to see the world through different lenses. Um, but compared to you know, becoming introspectively acquainted with your mind at a deep level, this step I was talking about is comparatively easy. Um, you can switch your glasses and you can interpret brain activity under, different, under a different perspective and neurons under a different perspective. And that will be already an enormous step forward. Um, the real big step, however, which is you know, for us to grow up when it comes to mental stuff, just grow the bloody up a little bit. Don't, don't be so naive and, and, and childish when it comes to acquaintance with your own mind. You know, most people alive, good and righteous people, think that there is no evil in their minds. <laughs> uh, that's, that's the sign of how young we are in our mental age when it comes to understanding what mind is. Um, that, so that step to become more mature about acquaintance with our own minds, oh, I think we are centuries away from meaningful progress towards that. We are very busy trying to distract ourselves away from our, from our inner mentation because all the skeletons hidden in the cupboard, they are in the cupboard of mind. So you don't want to take too deep a peek inside that cabinet because all of your traumas, all of your regrets, everything that you hate about you, everything that you hate about your life, they're all hidden in there. Uh, Why are you distracting yourself with sugary drinks, uh, meat and television shows and buying new pairs of shoes, uh, which is what we are all busy doing. We are all busy doing our very best to distract ourselves away from our own minds. So this will take a very long time to change because these are very hard waters. You know, nobody who takes the first sincere, honest peek into the domain of their own minds uh, fails to recoil. Everybody who takes the first real peek inside goes like, oh, wait a moment. I don't think I want to go there. So it, it takes either life beating you up so hard, so often, that you're forced there. You have to confront it. Or a degree of curiosity that makes it impossible for you to not look inside, which was, well, I, I suffered from both things. I had a, um, a degree of curiosity that was um, overwhelming. I had to look. And also life made sure to beat me up enough that I couldn't help but look in order to find a way to survive along with my neurosis. Um, but for most people, most people are extraordinarily successful at living their oh, whole lives without looking inside. It's extraordinary. It's amazing. Uh, we, we, we are a society of uh, zombies, not the living dead of the movies, 
but of people who are alive, um, but uh, who look everywhere outside and be completely blind to the inside, which is the carrier of all reality. Even the thing that looks to the outside is the inside, right? It's the consciousness that experiences the world outside. Um, we are we are very we are a civilization of zombies when it comes to mental introspection. It would take a long time or a catastrophe uh, to change. Yeah, I think this can be the title of the uh, this this uh, podcast as as well. You know, the civilization of zombies because. It has to be that striking for people to understand <laughs> how much we need to improve and kind of open our mind, look inside, as you said. And that's for both, basically, for scientists as well as uh, the society as well. You know. It's a civilization of teenage zombies. We have lots of octogenarian teenagers uh, running around the world and owning media <laughs> companies and, you know, and filtering the messages we get. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, so with that, uh, thank you so much, Bernardo. I think this was uh, a great, little over than little more than two hours conversation uh, with a lot of information, your insights, and I hope uh, great lessons for for all the neuroscientists, philosophers, students, society. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me.